good to be here with you. Being away is needed sometimes, but uh, coming home is the best. And being with our own people is the best. I missed you. And you're never very far from my heart. We had a last time, especially in miniatures meetings, very inspiring, encouraging, and uh, a real blessing. I'd like to take your thoughts, first of all, to Psalm 48. For the message this morning, I've entitled the message, the Christ in the Midst of His Church. We're going to go to Revelation 1 then after this, but I'd like to um, focus on what the psalmist was saying here in relation to Old Testament Israel. And we were in our Sunday school lesson talking about Mount Moriah a little bit, and um, which became Zion, or the city of David, and um, all related to a lot of the history of the Temple Mount and all of that. But notice here, um, Psalm 48 and verse 11, Let Mount Zion rejoice, let the daughters of Judah be glad because of thy judgments. Walk about Zion and go around about her. Tell or explain or show, point out the towers thereof. Mark ye well her bulwarks. Take a close look. Examine them, her bulwarks. Consider her palaces, that ye may tell it to the generations following. For this God is our God forever and ever. He will be our guide even until death. You think about, you know, from the, um, the aspect of Old Testament worship and the presence of God, and you think about here the city of God as it is referred to, and then, of course, there's the New Jerusalem, the future city of God. And in between, you know, the old and the new is the church, the kingdom of God on earth today. And while here we have Israel, the psalmist here, pointing out, you know, that, that take a look at this and examine this and understand it. Understand the, the armaments, the bulwarks. Understand the palaces, the beauty of it. And, he, and there's basically one reason that he gives why we should do that. He says that ye may tell it to the generations following. And that was something, as we understand a little bit about Jewish history, the Jews have been, even to this day, have been very good at keeping their history alive. Uh, no, I know they lost you know, a lot, and there's been times where in some generations it was very obscure. But overall, in the last um, almost 6,000 years, the Jewish history has been kept alive. I think reserved by God, also supernaturally. But even as the people of God, we were just talking about it at home here yesterday, I think it was, or Friday, some of the, the Jewish holidays that are still in our calendars today. And how they go back and they, they link up to Israel's history. Is it today or was it yesterday um, Hanukkah? Um, how many know what that refers to? 
Jewish holiday. It's on your calendar, right? How many of you see it on the calendar? I had it wrong. I was telling Regina that we were talking about it. I, I said, I think that commemorates the deliverance from Haman. Anyway, I had to brush up on my Jewish history. but It's Purim that, that is on our calendars usually as well. Purim is, is um, I believe, marks the deliverance of the Jews from the wicked Haman. That is a Jewish um, Jewish special day that is still observed today by many Jews, especially Orthodox Jews. But um, this one is uh, the Feast of Lights, so they light the candles. And um, a candle for each day, I believe it is. I didn't go into the, the details of that, but, but what I'm referring to that is in relation to this whole idea of history and how a lot of that was kept alive. And it's important that we as a people of God also keep sacred history alive and understand it and preserve it. And so here is this encouragement to walk about Zion. And we say in our terms today, walk about the church. Consider her palaces. Mark ye well her bulwarks as you may tell it to the generations following. And we have the precious privilege today of being a part of that kingdom of God on earth um, as the people of God. The uh, church belongs to Christ. We are privileged to be a part of that kingdom and um, certainly a blessing to us. Now let's go to Revelation 1. I was recently encouraged by this scripture again. Inspired by it, and you think about uh, the church, the place that we have in the heart of Christ, and his desire for the church, his work in the church. And it's, I guess, someone made the comment, uh, we were talking about a minister's meeting, you know, that, to remember that the church belongs to Jesus Christ. I know it's a simple truth, and we know that, but that the church belongs to Jesus Christ. It is his. And we think about the future aspect of the marriage supper of the Lamb and him claiming his bride and all of that glory, the glories that are yet ahead of us. But the, the, uh, the thought here is in relation to seeing the work of Christ in the church today. You know, we don't lose sight of that because I think we have a tendency at times to lose sight of the fact of the work of Christ, the heart of Christ in the church. And we can say, well, it's universal, the, the, the world over. That is true. But it's also where Jesus said, two or three are gathered together in my name. There am I in the midst of them. That's a church. Where sincere believers come together to worship Christ and to sincerely seek his will together. That's the church. And we ought to be excited about that. Now, Revelation 1 um, the, the title of the message, Christ in the Midst of, of His Church, is taken from verse 13. And we're going to read this passage. But in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man. He was in the midst of the candlesticks. Now, let's back up to verse 9. I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom... And patience of Jesus Christ was in the isle that is called Patmos, for the word of God, for the testimony of Jesus Christ, 
I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet, saying, I am Alpha and Omega. What, what does that mean? What is Alpha? Beginning. Beginning. What else is it? First letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And omega is? Last letter of the Hebrew alphabet, right? So he said, I'm A to Z. A to Z. From the beginning to the end. I'm alpha and omega. The, begin the first and the last. And what thou seest, write in a book. And send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus, and unto Smyrna, and unto Pergamos, and unto Thyatira, and unto Sardis, and unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that spake with me. And being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. What picture do you see there? Seven golden candlesticks. What does that remind us of? Seven churches. Seven churches? Good. What else? Light, yeah. What is the significance of the candlestick in the Old Testament? Right. Seven golden candlesticks. I think this is referring to, a, or a picture, it's a word picture of the Old Testament in the holy place. There was the lamp of God. There was the, seven, there, there was the golden candlesticks. And um, it had seven branches. One up the center, we understand it, and three out each side. And so he says, in being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. There's a tie-in from this time right back to Old Testament worship in the holy place. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow. And his eyes were as the, the, a flame of fire, and his feet like unto fine brass, as, they burn, as if they burned in, in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun, was as the sun shineth in his strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and of death. Write the things which thou hast seen, and the things which, which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. The mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. So here we have this vision. 
I think it was more actually than a vision in a sense. At least it would seem to me, because he said he laid his right hand upon me. So maybe that was in, in, in the state of a vision, I'm not sure. But it was very clear. It was, he was very, very descriptive in what he understood and what, what he saw. And here we think about this picture referring directly to Christ himself. He said, I'm the one who liveth. I was dead, but now I'm alive forevermore, the eternal one. And I don't understand all the word picture as it relates to the vision that he saw of Christ. You know, the, uh, his clothing, the garment, his head, his hair was white like wool, white as snow. You know, the eternal one, the ancient of days, maybe. His eyes are as a flame of fire. There's that piercing sense of vision, of being, of being able to look, you could say, right through us. His feet like fine brass. Brass in the Old Testament is usually what we would call copper. And his eyes were as a flame of fire. Oh, sorry, and his feet as fine brass. As if they burned in a furnace, his voice like the sound of many waters, like a waterfall or something like that. And so we have that picture of Christ that, that John saw. In his right hand were seven stars. And later we find in verse 20 that the seven stars are the seven angels of the seven churches. Most Bible scholars feel it's referring to the leaders or those who were responsible in the seven churches. Then you have the, the, the seven candlesticks, which thou sawest are the seven churches. So this picture is the picture of Christ in the midst of his church. And yes, there were different places, different cities where these were. That's why there was seven comprising his, his church. All drawing from, as it were, that oil in the lamps, in the candlesticks, drawing from that same source that, um, that he supplied. Now, I'd like to think for a little bit about this thought. We have the, um, we could go back to the Old Testament in relation to this, the, the lamp. Um, Exodus 25, 31 to 37 talks about this. We're not going to turn back to that. But it says there that you shall make a candlestick of pure gold, a beaten work, and um, with the shaft, the branches, the bowls, and there was a lot of detail went into that. It was, it was pure gold uh, beaten out of, of one piece of gold. Morning and evening, the lamps were tended by the priests. But now here in this passage, as we think of the significance of this, as Christ as the light of the world, and, and the, the light of the churches is from that source of oil for the the flow of Holy Spirit power from Christ to his churches. Um, and so we have this Christ pictured here as a loving yet firmly displaying his wisdom and his authority over the church. There's no question about it that Christ is the authority of the churches. Just, there's no question there. And we'll notice that as we go through this message. And we see his wisdom. We see his understanding. We see his perception. Now, let's just notice some of these. First of all, 
And thus, this go, takes us back to um, verse 13. He is in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. He is in the midst of his church. He is central in all aspects of the church. Romans eleven thirty six. For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. That's Christ. Now also think about in relation to the Pratu outworking of this. It means that in, in, the, in the Christian church, or in, you could say, our church, that we are part of here as the body of Christ, we must always be sure that we keep Christ in the midst, in the midst of our church. That we understand that while we talk about this and we discuss this and all of the things that we try to find our way through in, in the life of the church, that Christ is central. What his will is should come be the first question we ask. What does Christ want? What is Christ's wisdom? What does Christ say? That must be our vision and understanding of Christ being in our midst. We notice in chapter 2 and verse 1, we didn't read this. I debated on whether to read all the letters to the churches, but it's a lengthy passage. But notice in, in chapter 2, verse 1, the first uh, church that is referred to here, under the angel of the church at Ephesus, write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand. Now notice, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. So Christ is in the midst of his church, and Christ is active in his churches, or in his church, singular, combining all together. But he is active. It says he walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. It's almost like if we could say he, he walks up and down the aisle. He, he walks from row to row. He's active. And he is moving and arranging and, and the giving of gifts and, and all in the spirit direction and all of those things. If we are open and, and humble before him, Christ is giving us direction. And we must be open to that and accept and understand that. He walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. He also establishes his right and authority over the church. A sample of this is in chapter 2 and verse 5. The last part of this verse, well, let's read the whole verse. Um, this was to the church at Ephesus. Remember therefore from whence thou art fallen. He says because you left your first love. We'll come back to that later. And, do, and repent and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. Do we understand the seriousness? That if, if we fail to be the church that Christ wants us to be, like Ephesus here, and left their first love, and we're not repenting of this, he says, I'm going to, you need to repent or I'm going to come and take that candlestick away from you. The light will be gone. And you think about that in relation to the humility and the penitence that we need to have before Christ as a, as a body, as, as the church, that we are quick to hear his voice and respond and obey it. I think there are situations, I know of situations, that I suspect the candlestick 
has been removed. And sad to say, there are situations where I believe the candlestick has possibly been removed, but the programs just go on like always. It reminds us of the story of Samson. You know, that last time when they had shorn his hair, his strength was gone. What did Samson say? I'm going to get up and go out and shake myself as at other times. And he wist not that the Spirit had departed from him. That's sad. And so that makes it important for us to understand Christ's message and his activity and his right and authority over the church. He also possesses infinite knowledge of the church. We find, and we could read it, but seven times in each letter, the seven letters to the churches of Asia, which represents, I think, the, the, all churches, he says, I know thy works. There's no hiding from the eyes of Christ that were as a flame of fire. There's no hiding from that. You know, we can say, well, what about this? What about that? Christ says, I know. There's no uncertainty with me. I know thy works. Every church was told this. He possesses infinite knowledge of his church. He also establishes the premise whereby man can be part of the church, we could say, or remain part of his kingdom, the church. And that is the word repent. And that word is spoken every time when he points out to six of the churches, I believe it was the Church of Philadelphia was not necessarily rebuked, but six of the churches were told that unless they corrected what he said was wrong, he said he's going to remove the candlestick, but the word was repent. Repent. It's very simple. It's not difficult. Repent. There's this quote that I found. In relation to understanding repentance, sometimes we struggle with this. There's a vast difference between being sorry for sin and being sorry you got caught. Between confessing your sins or confessing some other brother's sins. Between seeing our own faults and seeing another person's faults. Between conversion of the head and conversion of the heart. Between being led by the Holy Spirit and being led by our own imagination. Between being persecuted for righteousness sake and being persecuted for foolishness sake. Between contending for the faith and striving for our own opinion. You see the contrast? An understanding true repentance. Christ's word for any of these churches where they were in the wrong and had failed the test of his view and understanding of their heart. Repent. Sometimes we just make it too difficult. We should just keep it simple. Repentance. That's what Christ is asking for from us. He also establishes the importance of the church in his plan for man. After the end of every letter to all seven churches, he says, 
And he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith to the churches. That is significant. It is, it is, it is important. And he, so he, he, he makes it very clear that the voice of a spiritual brotherhood carries all the authority of Christ. I think that's what that means. He that hath an ear, if you're listening, you have that spiritual understanding, you need to understand what the Spirit is saying to the churches. He carries all the, the spiritual authority of Christ. Now, I think it's something that is missing. It can be missing in so many different ways and areas. Especially we, we think about you know, our human nature and our struggle sometimes to accept accountability. And really what this is saying is that, that any that is, has that ear, anyone that is listening for the voice of God is going to understand that the Spirit of Christ is speaking through the church with authority. Now this can be missing, like, like I said, because none of us really in our old nature like accountability. We don't like to be held accountable for our actions. And, and also accountable in, in, in church life. But of course we understand the New Testament church does speak to accountability and a relationship. Now what I'd like to look next at what Christ observes from amidst the candlesticks. And just notice some of this from this passage. You know, the, the church of Ephesus, in chapter 2 and verse 4, Christ observes those who have left their first love and who did not no longer seem to have that energy and fervor and, and um, the desire to move forward in spiritual growth and maturity. You know, what was missing in verse 4, Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. First love is that vibrant love, that, that, um, that excited um, desire to do all that Christ wants us to do. In that first love experience, he says, you've, you've lost it. You're not there anymore. And so it can involve you know, various things. Are we seeking to please Christ in every aspect of our lives? That would be first love. Or on the other side, you know, having a more mechanical Christian life kind of that where we just kind of bounce along with not much enthusiasm and not much input. There can be the loss of humility and, and the brokenness of a contrite heart that I think also is... Um, indicates the fact that first love is is lost well he also notices those who are faithful in the midst of great difficulty the in chapter 2 verse 10 to the angel of the church of Smyrna in verse 8 and then down in verse 10 he talks about those who are going to suffer fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer behold the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that ye may be tried, and ye shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee the crown of life. Christ, there in the midst of those in suffering and in difficulty, I believe that 
today that Christ is standing in the room where the hostages are in Haiti. They are his people. Christ is there. You can be sure he's there. Fear none of these things, fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. He said, I'm going to be with you to the end of the world. I also believe that Christ is right here today, too, in, in this room with us. He will not overlook the smallest service if it is rendered to him in all sincerity. He promises that be thou faithful unto death and I will give you a crown of life. He notices those who hold the doctrine of Balaam. We have that here in the letter to Pergamos, verse 12, unto the angel of the church of Pergamos write, and those down in verse 14, I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication. So that hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate? Repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. There we notice that he notices and sees those who hold false doctrine, false teaching. The doctrine of Balaam could be described as the doctrine of mixing, trying to have the best of both worlds. Balaam you know, didn't really want to curse Israel, but he sure wanted the money. He was trying to figure out a way to have the money that, that Balak was offering him and somehow still not anger God by cursing Israel. He wanted the best of both worlds, we could say. How close can we get to the world and not be part of the world? You know, the doctrine of Balaam is the doctrine of mixing. Well, Christ also notices those that commit spiritual adultery. There, the, uh, the church of Thyatira in uh, verse 20, there's that secret love for the world. Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants, to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. And I gave her space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. And, um, and so on. He talks about the judgment that he's going to bring because of that. A secret love for the world, spiritual adultery. He knows whether our secret desires are pure and noble or whether they are selfish and worldly. He knows if we are just pretending or whether we are for real. And all of those things relate to this, this aspect of, um, of the spiritual adultery that we notice here. Verse 23 says, I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he which searcheth the reins and hearts, and I will give unto every one of you according to your works. It's a challenge for us as parents to make sure that our Christianity is authentic. I know that sounds simple, but that's really what it means in relation to living out true Christianity before our children. And where this happens, the children were lost. It says, I will kill her children with death. Spiritual death. The children were lost because someone was not faithful in their lives. 
He also sees the weak and uncommitted heart. Chapter 3 and verse 1, Sardis. He says, I know, um, I know thy works, that thou hast a name that thou livest, and art dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for have not found thy works per perfect before God. There again, it's the weak and uncommitted heart where um, you pretend or have a name that you're alive spiritually, but really inside you're spiritually dead. We also notice he, he, he sees those that keep his word, like the uh, church of Philadelphia, verse 7. These things saith he that is holy and that is true and hath the key of David, and he that openeth no man shutteth and shutteth and no man openeth. I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it. For thou hast a little strength, and hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name. And he does not really have a, a rebuke against this, this church as such, like the others. But he says that steadfast faith is going to be rewarded. And then the last one, the church of Laodicea, he notices the lukewarmness of their heart. In verse 15 and 16, I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot, I would thou wert cold or hot, so then because thou art lukewarm, and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. So there we notice the fact that um, lukewarmness is clearly, um, a, clearly rebuked. And um, the important thing there is, again, repentance. You know, the symptoms of lukewarmness, you know, the feeling, feeling little need to respond you know, to the sanctifying work of the Spirit in our hearts. A lukewarm heart will find all kinds of reasons for justifying its actions. But Christ's word is, again, repent. In closing, I'd like to think about the call of Christ from the midst of the, of the candlesticks, from the midst of the church. The Spirit will speak loud and clear to those who really want to listen. He that hath an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Do you want to hear? And that's something that we can look at in relation to our own hearts. Am I really sincere in knowing what Christ wants to say to us through his Holy Spirit through the church? Through our brothers, through our sisters. That's the church. And that's where the Holy Spirit speaks through. He will speak loud and clear if, if we want to hear. Also, another call of Christ from the midst of the church, or the candlesticks is, that we, and we talked about this, but repentance is the only way to deal with sin. You know, we can try this or try that, but repentance is the only way to deal with sin. It's very simple. Also, it's interesting that as you notice this, in the call of Christ, that rebuke is always coupled with mercy. You know, numerous times he'll say, well, you know, I have not found thy works perfect. Or, you know, this is, you know, uh, thou art lukewarm. Or, you know, there's various things that, where he rebukes these churches uh, for what, what they have, where they have failed. But it's always coupled with mercy. He says, you repent. And sometimes he says, you better quickly repent before I remove the candlestick. But there is that aspect of mercy. We saw that in the Sunday school lesson too, in relation to David. But rebuke is always coupled with mercy and giving the message of what it will take to clear the matter. 
I'd like to think lastly about the, the overcomer. Also, the overcomer will always be greatly rewarded. It's another interesting thing about these letters to the churches. As Christ in the midst of the church and is, and is seeing and observing and, and speaking, but there's always a promise as well. Back to chapter 2 and verse 7. We notice here, To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. The tree that was forbidden after Adam and Eve sinned and was uh, and apparently removed from the, the garden, or they were at least protected from it. They could not um, get close to it. Um, and there was a guard there, an angelic guard. But here we have God saying, To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, the restoration of what was all that was lost in the garden will be restored, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Verse 7, also, um, sorry, verse, uh, verse 11, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith to the churches. He that overcometh shall not be heard of the second death. That's a promise. We overcome, we will not be heard of the second death. We could go back further in Revelation and notice what that is. Eternal death. We also have um, down in verse 17. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna, and will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. There's a promise, a blessing. We could also go over to, um, to verse... Um, 26, and he that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end, to him I will give power over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of a potter shall they be broken in shivers, even as I received of my father, and I will give him the morning star. Again, a promise. Chapter, two, uh, chapter 3 and verse 6, uh, sorry, verse 5, he that overcometh the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I shall not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Promise. You overcome, your name's going to still be in the book of life when you get there, the day of judgment. I'm not going to blot it out. It's going to be there waiting for you. We go over to uh, chapter 3, verse 12. Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out. And I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God. And I will write upon him my new name. An identification eternally with Christ, owning his new name. The final adoption procedures, we could say, complete. There's a name change. Eternal. Eternally apart of the family of God. The last one, verse 21, To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am sat down with my Father in his throne. Granted to sit with Christ in his throne. 
I don't understand all of that. But you think about this a little bit from a human perspective. You stand before the throne of heaven and Christ calling your name. You come up and sit with me in my throne because you overcame. You trusted me, you served me, and you are mine. And I'm going to honor you in that way. Christ, this morning, walks up and down the aisles of the church. Christ's eyes are upon us. Christ's eyes see right through us. Christ knows us in every aspect. His plea to us is, if there is a, a need, if there is failure, if it's something that he rebukes us for, repent. But the call is overcome, overcome. By repentance we overcome. And then we're counted worthy to take his name and share his place of glory. May God help us as we continue to live for him and understand his presence today in the church. Let's kneel to pray. Father, we pause to again praise your name for your kingdom here on earth. The church, the privilege that we have to be part of the family of God, your family, to have you know us through and through, have you walk amongst us and point out what is needed and what needs to be done, what needs to be repented of, and also the encouragement of steadfastness, the encouragement to be an overcomer. Father, we know that we live in unusual times, at least for us in our lifespan, but we also know that this is not unusual for you. You already understand and know because of being the eternal one. There is no time, there is no past, there is no future, but everything is present. And so, Father, we trust our continued uh, pathway into your care and keeping. Be with each of us today in our lives. Help us to be faithful with those who are not here with us. We pray for Brother John and his uh, sickness there, continue to heal according to your will. We also pray again for the hostages in, in Haiti. Pray your continued direction, continued work for release. That you also pray most of all that your will would be accomplished through all of this, that your name would be glorified and magnified. We just pray for all those that will be traveling today, returning uh, for the service tonight. We just pray you bless them and keep them safe. And help all of us to continue to encourage each other in the, um, in the ways of, of Christ and, and uh, his desire for each of us. We ask in the name of Christ. Amen.